When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, this is CJ back with another guerrilla operation of mental emancipation. You're listening to episode 118 of the Dangerous History Podcast, and this one is going to be part one of a two-part series about party systems in American political history, kind of galloping through over 200 years of shifts and changes in what the parties are and what they mean. And the idea for this episode came about because just last week I was talking about the third party system in American history and its ending around 1896 and shift into what political historians call the fourth party system in one of my classes. And as I was doing that, I was explaining what party systems are and how they shift. And then I was tying it into our current election. And I was just raising the open-ended question. You know, I didn't have an answer to it. Is the Trump campaign a one-off wildcard fluke type thing? Or is it symptomatic of a party shift? We really can't be sure about that for probably at least a few decades. You need a lot of hindsight to be sure whether or not something is a fluke or a harbinger of change, but it's interesting to watch the whole thing from a purely spectator perspective. Of course, I'm a staunch abstainer from the political process and have been for years, but I still think it can be very amusing at times, and I still also think that it's important to understand the system and its history, because even for those of us who want it to go away, it's not going to anytime real soon, and while I certainly don't follow day-to-day politics anywhere near as closely as I used to when I still believed in the system and still voted and whatnot... I think it's still important to have an accurate understanding of what's going on and why to at least understand the basic fundamentals of the current paradigm that you're in. So anyway, I was talking about that in one of my classes and kind of the mental light bulb went on in my head because I was trying to figure out an episode or two I could do that wouldn't require a massive amount of new additional research because I'm still doing reading for kind of three big topics at once. And I'm going to list them in the order I'm going to produce them, and I'm also listing them in the order of how large they are. The first is the episode on Smedley Butler, United States Marine Corps General, that I plan on doing, hopefully, prior to the end of September. And then in October, I'm going to be doing what may end up being a two-parter on the Norman Conquest of England. And then somewhere in the fuzzy nether beyond that, will, of course, be the not-so-civil war, and those are, you know, progressively larger and larger things that require more and more reading on my part. But I figured an overview of the American party systems and their history is something that is important, it's interesting. Not everybody knows all the details about it, I certainly don't, but I think I know more than most people, and it's something that I've taught a bunch of times, so didn't require a vast amount of new reading on my part, just sort of brushing some things up, polishing a few things here and there and putting it all together. But got to take care of a few quick things before we get into that. Wouldn't it suck if all of a sudden here I started trying to sell you mail order razor blades or mattresses or underwear or something else ridiculous like that that had absolutely nothing to do with the show and that you got the impression I never even used or cared about until they wanted to sponsor me? I agree that would suck. I'm not opposed to advertising on moral grounds, and I'm not always opposed to it on aesthetic grounds. I think there are a few shows here and there that advertise things with integrity, where it's something that clearly has some connection to the show on some level, and something that the host of the show really does believe in, and it's not just some random product. And if I could find sponsors that were of that sort, I might consider it, 
But for now, I prefer just for myself and for my own version of, of integrity to try to make the product that I hawk here above all else, the show itself. And that's why it's so important to me to have people like my Patreon supporters who on a regular recurring basis help keep this show rocking on and hopefully getting bigger and better all the time. So my Patreon shoutouts this episode go out to Gary, Rob, James, Bernard, and Brian. Thank you all very, very much, sincerely from me, for stepping up to support the show on a per-episode basis via patreon.com slash profcj. And as always, the reminder to all of you who are not supporters of this show, if you enjoy it very much, there are a bunch of ways you can help out, and one of the most helpful is to support the show via Patreon. And if you sign up for $1 per episode or more, you'll have access to special bonus episodes, and you will also be eligible, should you so desire, to join the Facebook group, Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warriors, which is a private Facebook group just for supporters of this show. Also, I have to give a thank you to a listener for getting me something off the official DHP Amazon wish list. So big thanks to Michael. Michael was kind enough to get me James C. Scott's book, Seeing Like a State, on Amazon Kindle off of the Dangerous History Podcast Amazon wish list. Thanks a bunch, Michael. I very much appreciate it. And if any of the rest of you are feeling generous and have some Amazon credit or what have you burning a hole through your pocket, I'll have a link to that Amazon wish list in the show notes for this episode. Okay, so the, the first thing we got to talk about if we're going to talk about party systems in American political history is what is a party system? I'm assuming we all kind of have a basic idea of what a political party is, so I'm not going to get too sidetracked into trying to f- define that just for the sake of time. A party system, I would define, these are my words, I don't know how similar they may or may not be to like a political science textbook, but I would say that a party system is a paradigm that endures, and we're specifically talking about American political history, I would imagine something similar could be found in most countries' political history. And of course, in our case, for a variety of reasons having to do with certain rules and laws in our system, we tend to have two large parties that dominate the process. So a party system I would define as a paradigm that endures for several generations, usually like from two to four decades thereabouts. And it's a paradigm of what the two parties are all about and who tends to support which one. So a party system paradigm is defined by things like what the two parties actually are in terms of their names and kind of their their branding for themselves and so on, what the issues of the particular time period in question are, the stance of the two parties on those issues, and also what's sometimes called voter behavior and and voter, I don't know, affiliation and preferences. In other words, how people identify with and vote for one party or another, and in particular looking for strong patterns and tendencies based on factors like ethnicity, socioeconomic status, religious affiliation, and geographical region, those sorts of things. In other words, if I was to say that somebody in the year 1900 was a Southern evangelical Protestant, you could probably predict they would vote Democrat. If I were to tell you that someone in the year 2016 is a Southern evangelical Protestant, you'd probably predict that they would vote Republican. And there are lots of other different groups we could identify, different ethnic and racial groups, and some of them still vote for the same party they always have, and some of them it's changed as the party systems have shifted. Now, usually once you have a party system in place, this endures with a relatively consistent, predictable pattern for a while. Like I said, usually a few generations or so. But then sometimes after a while, there's an election that's significantly different. Now, when there's one of these quote-unquote different elections, it could be, kind of broadly speaking, one of two things. Either it's a one-off fluke kind of a thing caused by some sort of specific acute circumstances, and if that's the case, the pattern will usually reassert itself, the the original paradigm will come back within like an election cycle or two, or sometimes when there's a different election that on some level is a change from the previous paradigm, it could be one that signifies a 
paradigm change, or in other words, what I call a shift of party system. Now, this sort of election, a shift in party system, is one which replaces an old pattern with a new one that will then endure as the new paradigm or, or party system for a few more generations from then. But I should point out that telling the difference accurately between a kind of just one-off abnormal weird election and one that really signifies a genuine shift of party systems is something that's really not possible to do with any kind of accuracy at the time. Now, you might make a lucky guess, you might not. But to really know whether or not there's been a shift and to really understand it in its ramifications, you really need hindsight, preferably at least a few decades. Now, to make things even trickier, sometimes the names of the parties will change when there's a party system shift, and sometimes they won't. So, for example, during the first two party system shifts in American history, it's really easy to spot them because the parties actually changed their names. However, since the beginning of the third party system in the mid-1850s, ever since then, for now going on about 160 years, the names of the two major parties in the U.S. have remained the same. They've been called the Republicans and the Democrats ever since the 1850s. But that does not at all mean we're in the same party system as 160 years ago. In fact, most political historians would say that the party systems in the United States have shifted at least three or four times since the 1850s. In other words, while the names of the parties stayed the same, the real substance of the issues and the two-party stances on them, and kind of who tends to support which one of the two parties has drastically changed several times. So, anyway, in this episode, I want to talk about the first three party systems in American political history, and then next time I'll pick up with the third party system, talk a little bit more about that, and then finish that off and proceed through the fourth, fifth, and the debatable sixth party system in which we might be right now, and hopefully this will all give us a little bit of perspective on what might be going on now as kind of spectators watching the ever-amusing freak show known as American politics. Briefly, I want to mention what there was before there were really parties in American history. And the Founders' Generation typically talked of factions rather than parties, at least prior to the 1790s when full-fledged political parties emerged in America. The most common sorts of political factions before the coming of the U.S. Constitution were factions in first colonial level and then state level politics, rather than at the central or federal government level. Of course, in the colonial period, the central government was the British government, and then under the Articles of Confederation, the central government was so limited that nothing like full-fledged parties emerged. So under both the British Empire and the Articles of Confederation, there were reasons why factions, these sort of early proto-parties, remained very localized. And these factions that existed at the state level often had at least as much to do with family and kinship and that sort of thing as with ideology and interests in an abstract sense. But true political parties as we know them didn't emerge until after the Constitution was in place and created a much more powerful and centralized federal government. It's kind of ironic that many of the framers of the Constitution, including most famously the so-called father of the Constitution himself, James Madison, were vehemently opposed to political faction factionalism, or parties as they would have later called it. And people like James Madison, they explicitly tried to design the constitutional system in such a way as to minimize the effects of factionalism, to kind of contain it. Now, I say that this dislike of faction by people like Madison and their attempts to mitigate it via the structure of the Constitution is ironic precisely because it was the Constitution itself which ended up setting the stage for entrenched and powerful political parties. By the way, even within a statist paradigm, the Constitution has lots of major structural flaws that have been revealed over the course of time in practice, and one of them is, of course, the belief that separation of powers and checks and balances, you know, breaking up the functions of the government into three branches, will protect liberty. That one's proven to have been a failure, I think, pretty decisively by this point. 
But another structural flaw of the Constitution is that the whole thing was designed, though not intentionally, in such a way that a two-party system would kind of become a permanent feature of the system, and yet the workings of the system was designed without taking into account anything resembling political parties. So the kind of structure and electoral rules and whatnot, in hindsight, made the rise of ultimately two powerful political parties inevitable, I would argue. And yet when they were putting in place the kind of rules of how the different branches would work and the way the elections would work within them and all these kind of things, they never in any significant way figured into their calculations and their designs that there would be these powerful entrenched parties. So in many ways, these two parties are kind of like extra constitutional, but permanent entrenched features of the American political system, I guess is how I would put it, if that makes any sense. Now, there were, of course, factions that were sort of like proto parties during the period of 1787 to 1789, when the Constitution was being debated and ratified by the state conventions. And those were, of course, the so-called Federalists, who were the proponents of the Constitution, and the Anti-Federalists, who were opponents of the Constitution. But they were not quite full-fledged political parties as we understand them. They lacked a lot of the kind of infrastructure and organization, and, you know, they only lasted very briefly. These were like temporary alliances either for or against this one thing, rather than political parties with like a whole host of points of view on a whole host of issues and a platform and all that kind of stuff. Now, the first party system in American history is usually dated to something like 1792 to either the 18-teens or the early 1820s. And this is the one wherein one of the parties was known as the Federalists and the other one was known as the Democratic Republicans, hyphenated together, or as the Republicans for short sometimes. This first party system in American history, really the seat of it was within Washington's first cabinet, and it was pretty well flowering into political parties as we know them by Washington's second term. This first party system in American political history, it began as initially kind of a personal and ideological simultaneous uh, rivalry between Alexander Hamilton, who was Washington's secretary of the treasury, and Thomas Jefferson, who was his secretary of state. So these two guys didn't like each other personally, and they disagreed on almost every big issue of the day politically. And Hamilton really got the ball rolling when very early on he really seized the reins of Secretary of Treasury and decided to work them for all they were worth to put all of his preferences in place, many of which he had tried to get written into the Constitution but had rejected by the convention. But now Hamilton is determined to get them into the system one way or another. And so he really got the ball rolling on this partisan split by pushing for things like federal assumption of leftover state debts from the Revolutionary War, the creation of a national bank, federal funding for so-called internal improvements, which meant like big infrastructure projects, and also a high protective tariff that would explicitly favor manufacturing in America over agriculture. Thomas Jefferson opposed all these things. He saw them as unconstitutional and as creating a dangerous big government that smacked too much of the British Empire. By the way, Alexander Hamilton was an avowed fan of the British Empire system and was kind of trying to set up a homegrown American version of it. His words, he was upfront about it. Now, what started off as a feud within the Washington administration, and of course, Washington himself sided with Hamilton pretty much all the time, even though Washington tried to say, oh, I'm not a member of a party and I don't think parties are good. And yet he always sided with one party. But anyway, what started as a personal feud and then turned into an ideological feud and then kind of grew from there as Jefferson attracted supporters from Congress and Hamilton's Uh, attracted supporters from Congress as well, and as each guy kind of attracted his own newspapers that followed his point of view, you really get something very close to what we would recognize as a political party today. And by about the mid-1790s, the followers of Hamilton were known by the term Federalists. They brought back that name that had previously denoted somebody who wanted the Constitution ratified, and the Jeffersonians were referring to themselves as Republicans or Democratic Republicans. And this partisan divide continued to solidify, and the parties became more and more 
organized and formalized during the presidencies of John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. And so just briefly running through the two parties and some of their characteristics, the Federalists in general are more in favor of a powerful, centralized government. On the economy, they would best be described as mercantilists, not as laissez-faire free marketeers. On the question of the Constitution and how to interpret it, the Federalists were proponents of ideas that really can be traced back to Hamilton and a few other guys, such as loose construction. It can be interpreted kind of loosely, and the idea of implied powers, that there's all kinds of powers in the Constitution that the government has that are not explicitly stated, is what they would believe. And they point to a few things like the Necessary and Proper Clause and the General Welfare Clause and say, yeah, you see those things? Those mean the government can kind of do whatever it wants. Federal government, right? Now, on foreign affairs, there was a partisan split because there were, of course, the wars of the French Revolution and Napoleon going on, and there were various people in America that wanted the United States to jump in on one side or the other. And the Federalists mostly tended to be pro-Britain and anti-France. In general, the Federalists favored a high tariff and high other taxes. Hamilton, of course, among other things, famous for instituting a high excise tax on whiskey that sparked the Whiskey Rebellion that I covered a long time ago in an earlier Dangerous History podcast episode. The Federalists were supportive of the idea of creating a national bank and also, as I said before, favored federal funding for what they called internal improvements. In general, the types of people in America that tended to be Federalists tended to be your kind of New England Yankees, large financiers and businessmen in general, think like Robert Morris types, another guy that I've done an episode on, Robert Morris. And in the South, there were Southern Federalists. They tended to be your large planters, your big plantation owners. And then some characteristics of the Democratic Republicans. In general, they're more in favor of limited decentralized government. They're much closer to laissez-faire on economic questions. On the Constitution, they advocate for strict construction, meaning stick to the letter of the Constitution, don't go interpreting it too much and the idea of enumerated powers, meaning they believe that the only powers the federal government had were the ones that are explicitly granted to it in the wording of the Constitution. And for this, they would heavily lean on things like the Ninth and Tenth Amendment to support their arguments. On foreign affairs, Democratic Republicans tended to be much more pro-France and anti-Britain, tended to be against a high tariff and other high taxes, They oppose the National Bank as both unconstitutional and as creating a whole bunch of additional privileges for bankers. They opposed federal funding of big internal improvements projects, and their main constituent groups were kind of small farmers or yeoman farmers, small businessmen, and artisans. So that was the basic party system all the way through kind of James Madison's presidency and through the War of 1812. Now, in the War of 1812, very interesting, Federalists tended to be very much against that war, and New England Federalists, who were kind of like the most Federalists of the Federalists, were against that war most of all. In fact, in New England, the Federalists up there basically nullified the war and continued trading with the British during the war and drug their feet and didn't mobilize their militia to help and all that kind of stuff. And this created a really negative opinion of Federalists in much of the rest of the country. And it was one of the reasons why, after the War of 1812, the first party system really started to fray at the edges and kind of fade away. First, the the Federalist Party became, for a couple of election cycles, a very marginal party that didn't get very many votes outside of New England. And then ultimately, they ceased to exist entirely. And it's hard to pinpoint an exact date for the end of the first party system. But most historians would put it somewhere in between, like, 1815, which is the end of the War of 1812, and, say, maybe at the absolute latest, 1820. In fact, this era where the first party system had faded out, but the second party system hadn't fully come into being yet, is one that was traditionally referred to in American historiography as the Era of Good Feelings. And this kind of limbo state in between the first and second party system is usually dated at roughly the same period as the two presidential terms of James Monroe, say approximately 1817 to 1824. The first party system is really kind of broken down, but the second party system isn't really there yet. 
And it's the only time in American history where there was kind of a significant period of limbo between two party systems. During this so-called era of good feelings, it's as if the country kind of had only one party, which in practice sort of is like having no parties, really. Because the only party anyone identified with explicitly at the national level was something kind of vaguely called Republican. And that, in practice, meant that the label Republican meant basically nothing during this years. Because a lot of the people who, during the era of good feelings, called themselves Republican had points of view that were decidedly Hamiltonian-sounding. And the fact of the matter is, the ideas of Alexander Hamilton never really went away. Even when the Federalist Party, after being decisively trounced at the polls time after time, and being relegated to just the margins of, of the American political system, the guys who really wanted to push that platform wouldn't take no for an answer. The Federalist Party lived on beyond the grave in two places. One I already mentioned, what we would call kind of this era's version of Republicans in name only, kind of the original rhinos. These were the people who in the late 18-teens, early 1820s, call themselves Republicans, but are totally pushing Hamilton's program and agree with the Jeffersonian tradition on virtually nothing. And then the other place where the Hamiltonian ideas lived on beyond the grave was in the federal court system, the part of the government that is, of course, immune to election cycles. Specifically, a lot of it came from John Marshall. John Marshall's court rulings kept up a steady stream of centralization and kind of cementing a lot of Hamiltonian ideas into the American system via the judiciary. John Marshall was a last-minute appointee of outgoing lame-duck President John Adams in 1801, Adams appointed Marshall to the Supreme Court Chief Justice position, and Marshall held that job from 1801 until 19, almost, until 1835. So for 34 years, he was Chief Justice of the Supreme Court during some of the most formative years of the American system kind of figuring itself out in practice. And during that period, it wasn't just John Marshall, he was the most important and influential, but Many of the other Supreme Court justices and even kind of, you know, lesser federal judges were still for decades Federalist appointees who had been appointed by either Washington or Adams. And this gave them plenty of opportunities to buck the will of the people who kept rejecting the Federalists at the polls and to keep sticking Federalist opinions into the system through the courts. And it's important to point out that this idea of the era of good feelings is kind of misleading because... Just because everybody calls themselves by the same party name doesn't mean they actually agree on all the issues. In fact, even when there is a two-party system and they're a little bit more ideological oriented, still plenty of people in both parties don't agree with their party on everything. To think you can have every politician in America part of the same party and that's going to mean they all agree on everything is ridiculous. Short of like instituting a totalitarian Stalinist overlord, of course. By the way, if you hear rain and thunder in the background, that's because I live in the Sunshine State, which I've realized is ironically named, kind of like the seven-foot-tall guy named Tiny and the really clumsy guy known as Slick. So divisions were emerging even within the alleged one party over issues of kind of Hamiltonian versus Jeffersonian preferences, of centralization versus decentralism. And during this era the so-called era of good feelings, the guy who kind of emerged as the leader of the nationalist faction within this largely meaningless Republican Party was a young congressman named Henry Clay of Kentucky who began championing a system that he dubbed the American system. And isn't that a great name? Because after all, who could be against the American system, right? You gotta love it when they give these nebulous names to laws and platforms and things like this. New Frontier, New Deal, Fair Deal, Square Deal. Well, what was Henry Clay's American system? Well, the main components of it were, wait for it, a high tariff, a national bank, and federal funding for internal improvements. Sound familiar? Ding, 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 ding. It's Hamilton's exact program with a different label. Now, they didn't have bumper stickers back in the 1820s, but I would imagine if they did have carriage stickers, somebody would have a carriage sticker that said something about the American system and wanting to make it great again or something like that. I don't know. Now, the kind of last election of this weird era of good feelings 
is going to be a very unusual one. James Monroe was popular enough that he was able to get easily reelected in this strange atmosphere, but when he decided to step down after two terms, you now no longer have an incumbent, and since you don't really have two political parties anymore, you end up with a whole bunch of candidates. In fact, you end up with four serious contenders. The first is Andrew Jackson of Tennessee, war hero. The second is Secretary of State John Quincy Adams of Massachusetts, son of John Adams. The third is a guy not as well known to us today, but very popular at the time, named William Crawford from Georgia, who at the time was Treasury Secretary. And the fourth is Congressman and at that time Speaker of the House, Henry Clay of Kentucky. Now, when the Electoral College casts its votes, and this is where the Electoral College still had a lot more independence than it does today to kind of make their own decision. When the Electoral College casts their votes, the candidates come in in the order that I just mentioned their names. So Jackson is first, Adams is second, Crawford is third, and Clay is fourth. Jackson has won a plurality, meaning he's won more votes than any of the other candidates in the running. But it's not a majority. In other words, it's not over 50%. And the Constitution specifies to become president, you must get not just a plurality, but a majority of the votes of the Electoral College. So since none of them, when the Electoral College voted, got an actual majority, what happens is that, as per the terms of the 12th Amendment, the House of Representatives would then pick the president from among the top three from the Electoral College vote. So Clay's no longer in the running, and they're choosing from among Jackson, Crawford, and Adams. Now, Clay was no longer in the running, but he already had an absolute personal and political vendetta against Andrew Jackson, and it went, it was decidedly mutual, right? And this went back as least as far, at least as far as Jackson's seizure as general of Florida from Spain, which Henry Clay vehemently opposed. And there had already been a lot of nasty back and forth between the two of them. And so Clay, um, in addition to that, he doesn't agree with Jackson on a lot of the issues. And so Clay decides, well, I'm no longer in the running, but I'm Speaker of the House. That means I kind of can sway a lot of congressmen where I want them to vote. And so he decides to use that poll to get enough congressmen to vote for John Quincy Adams that Adams wins and becomes the president. Despite the fact that in the Electoral College vote, Jackson, while he didn't quite get a majority, got more than Adams. And in fact, Jackson was known to be clearly the favorite of the people. And he had also won a strong plurality of the popular vote as well. Now, Jackson and his supporters were understandably very, very angry about this whole thing, and they were even more angry when, after becoming president, John Quincy Adams appointed Henry Clay as his Secretary of State, and this is called by Jackson's supporters the corrupt bargain. And this is kind of the beginning of the second party system in a lot of ways. From about 1825 to 1828, those years in there, during John Quincy Adams' single-term presidency, a pro-Jackson faction was organized, largely by Martin Van Buren of New York, into what became known as the Democratic Party. Now, opponents of Jackson had initially been known as the National Republican Party, but after 1828, they had taken to calling themselves the Whig Party, W-H-I-G, which they stole from the name of an English political party, even though the, the two parties, the, the Whig Party of England and the Whig Party of America, didn't have that much in common in terms of issues. But the one thing they did have in common, which I think is why they picked the name, is that the Whig Party in England was generally known as the more kind of anti-monarchy party. I mean, not that they were in favor of abolishing it, but they were in favor of limiting the powers of the monarch more. And the Whig Party initially, above all else, was founded as an anti-Jackson party. And one of the things was they accused Jackson of acting in an authoritarian and almost monarchical fashion as president. So, as with the first party system, to a pretty large extent, the origins of the second party system can be found in kind of a combination personal and ideological rivalry of two men, namely Andrew Jackson and Henry Clay. Now, running through the two parties of the second party system, which, by the way, the second party system would run from the late 1820s through about the mid-1850s. 
We've got the Whig Party, who are clearly in many ways descended from the Federalist Party. And some of their leading lights would be, besides Henry Clay, people like Daniel Webster, people like John Quincy Adams, people like Horace Mann, the education reformer. And early in his career, for like the first half of his career, Abraham Lincoln. Like the Federalists, the Whigs are in general much more favorable to a powerful centralized government. They're more mercantilist on the economy. Like the Federalists, they favor the loose construction implied powers view of the Constitution. They tend to favor a high tariff and lots of other taxes as well. They support the idea of a national bank. And something that by the 1840s was becoming a really big issue was immigration. In the 1840s, America started to get a lot more immigrants from Germany and Ireland. And almost all of the Irish immigrants who started coming after the 1840s, and a good portion of the German immigrants, too, were Catholic. And there was a lot of anti-Catholic prejudice on the parts of the sort of people who tended to be Whigs. And so the Whig Party was trying to get immigration limited, and they tended to be anti-Catholic and have all these arguments that Catholics can't be real Americans and so on. The Whigs were much more favorable to the idea of compulsory public schooling and... They were favorable to the idea of high land prices, and in particular, they were talking about the lands out west that the federal government, according to them, so-called owned. They wanted that land to be sold off at a high price, whereas their opponents wanted it to be either sold at a lower price or were in favor of some sort of homesteading system. The main constituent groups of the Whig Party were... New England Yankees, large financiers and businessmen, large planters. I mean, very similar to the same sorts of people who have been Federalists under the old party system. And then there's a new wild card into the mix. People who are of religions that would be known as Pietist. Now, the Democrats clearly, while they weren't quite as consistent as the old Jeffersonians, were intellectually and ideologically descended from them. Some of their leading lights would be people like Andrew Jackson, Martin Van Buren... James K. Polk, Stephen Douglas, Lewis Cass, they tended to be more in favor of limited and decentralized government, tended to be closer to laissez-faire on the economy. Like their Jeffersonian predecessors, they tended to be more in favor of strict construction and enumerated powers in terms of how they interpreted the Constitution, tended to oppose a high tariff and high taxes in general, opposed the idea of a national bank, They were much more okay with immigrants and with Catholics than the Whigs. They supported school choice, basically. I mean, the idea that, for example, Catholic parents should be allowed to send their child to a Catholic school if they wanted to. They favored low land prices or homesteading in regard to Western lands. And their main constituent groups, like with the old Jeffersonian Democratic Republicans, were your small yeoman farmers, your smaller businessmen, your artisans, and the types of religions that would be known as liturgical. Now, I want to point out before I continue that neither of these two parties, the Whigs or the Democrats of the second party system, had a unified kind of party-wide stance on the issue of slavery. It's part of what causes the undoing of this party system when slavery becomes the issue, specifically the spread of slavery out West, becomes the issue after the war with Mexico in the 1840s that causes this party system increasingly to have less relevance as a paradigm to what people really cared about. So during the second party system, there were Northern Whigs and Southern Whigs. There were Northern Democrats and Southern Democrats. And likewise, there were anti-slavery and pro-slavery people in both of these two parties. And also I should point out that a lot of the Southern Whigs were never very good Whigs. They were kind of maverick independents in a lot of ways. Many of them weren't really sold on the whole Henry Clay, Daniel Webster, Alexander Hamilton-ish platform, but were in fact Whigs simply because they opposed Andrew Jackson for whatever reason. So, for example, you had a Whig like John Tyler of Virginia, who Southern Whig, obviously, who became president when William Henry Harrison died in office, and then shocked the Whig Party when they went to set up a new national bank and 
newly minted President John Tyler of the Whig Party vetoed it and stood up in so doing against one of the central parts of the Whig Party platform. And by the way, got kicked out of the Whig Party for doing so. And there were some other Southern Whigs like that who opposed Jackson's heavy-handed executive style, but didn't necessarily support things like a high tariff and a national bank. And to be fair, there were Democrats who were not that consistent on their point of view either. A good example is Andrew Jackson himself, who fought hard against the National Bank, but on the other hand, when South Carolina resisted paying a very high federal tariff, Andrew Jackson didn't side with South Carolina. He sided with the feds collecting that tax, which was not a very Jeffersonian thing to do. Increasingly, in addition to things like the National Bank, which was probably one of the biggest issues during this era, a lot of what we might call social issues began to enter into politics in various ways as a result of the so-called Second Great Awakening religious revival movement that swept through America in kind of like the 1820s and 30s and 40s and maybe a, a little bit into the 50s. The original Great Awakening, or First Great Awakening, had been a religious revival movement back in the 18th century before the American Revolution. And it was largely, though not entirely, Calvinist in content. But by contrast, the religious revival movement known to history as the Second Great Awakening mostly rejected Calvinism in favor of the belief that, in principle at least, everyone can and ought to be saved. And the idea of a lot of these denominations of how to achieve salvation was first you go through kind of a personal conversion, born-again emotional process, and second, then you try to maximize the salvation of everyone around you. Now, looking at the nation as a whole, in regard to the Second Great Awakening, Methodism grew the most of any denomination. In fact, on the eve of the Civil War in America, Methodism was the single largest Christian denomination in the country. Now, it would eventually, after the war, get overtaken by Catholics, but that was as a result of immigration that still hadn't happened in big enough numbers yet before the Civil War for Catholics to overtake Methodists. And then secondarily, uh, Baptists rose to become, by the eve of the Civil War, the second largest denomination in American religiosity. Also during this time period, some denominations that had already existed fragmented into Calvinist or non-Calvinist factions. So for example, the Presbyterians around the time of the Second Great Awakening broke into what were then known as old school Calvinists, sorry, old school Presbyterians who remain kind of traditional Calvinist Presbyterians and new school Presbyterians who were your non-Calvinist, more kind of evangelical types. And the group known as Yankees were the key ethno-cultural group in both the Second Great Awakening itself and much of the reform movements that sprang out of it. The term Yankee, by the way, originally didn't refer to anyone from north of the Mason-Dixon line, as most people think of it today. The term Yankee originally meant specifically someone who was of New England Puritan ancestry. Now, these people began in New England as Puritans, you know, back in like the 17th century. And then over time, many of them converted to other faiths as time moved on, and also some of them spread out, in general they moved kind of westward, into parts of other states, but they retained a, a distinct ethno-cultural identity as Yankees. So for example, though they originated in New England, Yankees, for lack of a better term, colonized many places, including upstate New York, especially the area known as the Burned Over District, which saw a lot of the religious revival movements of the Second Great Awakening kind of sweep through it or even originate in that area. Also, Yankees, this specific meaning of Yankee, they moved later into northern parts of Ohio, Indiana, and Illinois, and then from there westward into some of the plains and mountain states. And ultimately, a fair number of them made it to kind of the Pacific Northwest coast. They just sort of moved straight west from where they started. So an interesting way to categorize American Christianity in the 19th century post-Second Great Awakening that then explains a lot regarding political preference is to break American Christianity in the 19th century into the categories of pietist and liturgical. 
Now, this way of breaking up American Christianity doesn't quite hold true in more recent times, for a variety of reasons, if, if, as different denominations have changed and evolved and so on. But I think it's pretty good for understanding what things were like in the 19th century in the era of the second and third party systems. And in my understanding of this, I'm heavily influenced by an article from a 1982 issue of the Journal of Libertarian Studies written by an historian named Richard Jensen. And the article is called Religion, Morality, and American Politics, and I will link to it in the show notes for this episode. And I've also seen Murray Rothbard in a bunch of places talk about 19th century American Christianity and how that affected people's political preferences in a variety of places. I have a feeling he was probably influenced by this article by Richard Jensen. But anyway, Jensen breaks American Christianity, starting with the Second Great Awakening for the remainder of basically the 19th century, into the categories of pietist and liturgical. And pietist denominations would include things like Methodists, Quakers, New School Presbyterians, Northern Baptists, Congregationalists, and so-called Low Church Lutherans, such as the Scandinavian Lutherans. Whereas the liturgical group would include Catholics, Old School Presbyterians, Episcopalians, and High Church Lutherans or German Lutherans. And Jensen says that in the 19th century, Southern Baptists were kind of hard to place into one of these camps. Now, the pietists believed that the way an individual achieved salvation was through some kind of personal, mystical, emotional uh, conversion process and direct relationship with Christ, something along those lines. And they tended to be also mostly evangelical, meaning they thought it was also incumbent upon them to try and maximize the salvation of others around them. Whereas the liturgicals believed that salvation came from joining the church, whichever church you were, of course, is always the correct one, and then kind of following its rules and participating in its rituals and so on. And they didn't really believe in this idea of an individual personal emotional relationship with Christ or God or whatever. And they tended to be what Richard Jensen calls particularistic, meaning they didn't believe that everyone could, in principle, or would, in practical terms, be saved, whereas the pietists were more inclined to believe those things, that, in principle, everyone could be saved, and if you were a good pietist, it was an incumbent upon you to do your best to try to ensure that everybody would be saved. In the article, Jennings Jensen gets into some different things as far as the different types of morality that these different ways of viewing Christianity produced, and also they tended to produce political preferences, with liturgicals tending strongly towards being Democrats in the second party system and also in the third party system, whereas pietists tended more strongly to be Whigs in the second party system and then Republicans in the third party system. Pietists were much more comfortable with the idea of using the power of the state, of law, of government, to try to eradicate sin, whereas liturgicals were not as comfortable with that idea. They, they didn't believe that every sin should be a crime or that every vice should be a crime. Many of the pietists, though not all, were what were called post-millennialists, which was a pretty common belief in American Christianity in the 19th century. Uh, I get the sense it's much less common these days. And a post-millennialist believes that the second coming of Christ won't occur unless and until men first created a kingdom of God on earth, which they would define as like a society without vice and sin where everyone's a good pietist. So in other words, their belief was that the second coming depended upon the actions of people on earth. And this explains a lot of the zeal of their reform efforts and a lot of their rhetoric, which is often very apocalyptic when they're talking about stamping out sin, banning alcohol, or whatever it might be. They often have this very, very warlike, apocalyptic tone in their rhetoric. I mean, even as late as 1912, when Teddy Roosevelt was nominated by the Progressive Party, which was largely pietists, he concluded his nomination speech with the line, we stand at Armageddon and we battle for the Lord, and then the progressive party conventioneers began singing Christian hymns with Roosevelt's name in place of Christ. So a lot of this is derived from this post-millennialist idea that first humans must create a perfect society, and then, and only then, will the second coming of Christ occur. And so this is why they're so zealous in things like trying to ban alcohol, setting up public schools, etc., 
They believed all these things would help bring about a kingdom of God on earth. So a variety of different reform movements grew out of the Second Great Awakening and all this pietism. I think some of them are ones that we would sympathize with as good causes, and some of them are maybe ones that we wouldn't. So, for example, the anti-alcohol movement, which began as temperance, which was based on the idea of moderation mixed with moral suasion as kind of the goal, and then eventually morphed into the much more militant prohibition movement to ban alcohol outright. Also, things like, before the Civil War at least, abolitionism grew out of pietism to a large extent. The movement for compulsory public schooling very much grew out of pietist religiosity, and it was largely out of a reaction against Catholic immigrants in the mid-19th century that they wanted to create these compulsory public schools, and they were very explicit that they wanted to Americanize, meaning basically strip away the culture and religion of a lot of these Catholic immigrants who were coming over in increasing numbers in the mid to late 19th century. And in general, these people wanted laws to eliminate vice and sin, and they wanted those laws to be much more rigorously enforced. By the way, a lot of early 20th century American progressives are either are either devout pietists or they're people who come from a pietist family, and perhaps they themselves don't believe all the theology, but nonetheless, they still have the mindset towards vice and the relationship of government with vice and so on. The breakdown of the second party system... And its replacement by the third-party system is actually something I covered in a fair amount of detail back in episode 99, which was part five of my History of American Slavery series. But I'll kind of quickly review a few points here related to that story. So the spread of slavery to new parts of America resurfaced as a major issue after having been on the back burner for a little while. It resurfaced in the 1840s and 50s because, number one... The United States had added a lot of new territories out west. Basically, the swath of land running from Texas to California had been added over the course of the 1840s. And secondly, kind of as this issue of whether or not slavery should spread out west and how that should be decided resurfaced, it caused the Whig Party to kind of fall apart and weaken the second party system overall. And the reason for that was, as the spread of slavery became the central issue of American politics, the fact that the two major parties didn't have a unified, consistent point of view on that weakened them in terms of relevance to the debates that were taking place in Congress and in the the electorate at large. And one can even see this split in American churches at the time. The two largest denominations of Christianity in antebellum America were Methodists and Baptists, and both of them officially split into northern and southern branches in the 1840s, and a big part of it was a split over this issue of slavery and everything that revolves around it. The Whig Party would fall apart by the mid-1850s. The Democrats didn't ceased to exist entirely, but for a while, they would split into separate northern and southern factions, kind of like the Methodists and Baptists did. And in the 1860 election, the Northern Democrats and Southern Democrats nominated different candidates. Now, you had the Compromise of 1850, which was about bringing in California as a free state, and then all these other different compromises related to the issue of slavery and its spread were worked into it to try to try to make it the thing that would appeal to everybody and kind of mollify sectionalism. But in fact, it ended up not satisfying anybody. And the Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854 that opened up the possibility that Kansas might become a slave state, and which led to violence in Kansas over the issue, pretty much killed what was left of the second party system. And it was the Kansas-Nebraska Act that, in large measure, led to the formation of the new Republican Party. And 1852 was the last time that the Whig Party fielded a presidential candidate. Now, as the Whig Party was falling apart... Whigs kind of splintered off into a couple of alternatives, and one was the so-called American Party, better known to history as the Know-Nothing Party, which was very much on the anti-immigrant bandwagon, the idea that white native Protestants should keep out people like German and Irish immigrants, especially those who were Catholic, and... In addition, they focused a lot on the social issues of the Whig pietist tradition of opposing alcohol and things like this. Then another branch of former Whigs founded a party that ended up having wider appeal and thus 
won out and emerged as the alternative to the Democrats. And that's, of course, the Republican Party, who were a pretty diverse bunch who didn't all agree on everything. But one of the things that unified them was they opposed the spread of slavery into new places out west. They also wholeheartedly adopted the Whig, Henry Clay, American system slash Hamilton system. You know, somebody like Abraham Lincoln was a huge admirer of Henry Clay. Abraham Lincoln was a Whig for a long time before the Whig Party fell apart. And Lincoln vehemently agreed with all of Henry Clay's economic platform. And so the Republican Party is kind of taking the Whig economics and combining it with opposition to the Western spread of slavery. And then, yeah, they also agreed with a lot of the Whig slash know-nothing social issue stances, but they didn't put those as front and center in their political message as the know-nothing party. And it ended up being a much more appealing party to a larger number of people. And that's why the Republican Party within a few election cycles, had decisively emerged as the alternative to the Democrats and the Know-Nothing Party faded away. Another thing that strengthened the Republican Party early on was they did support homesteading, which was a major diversion on that particular issue from what the Whigs had supported. The Whigs, if you'll recall, had wanted land prices of, you know, the ability of people to buy unoccupied land from the state out west to be kept high. And the Republicans instead supported some sort of homesteading bill. And this broadened their appeal to a lot of what back then was called the Northwest. And they were able to attract a fair amount of Northwestern Democrats to support this new party because of this whole homesteading thing. In the South, in the years leading up to the Civil War, the Democrats quickly became the only really viable party outside of a couple of areas in the Appalachian Mountains that were Republican. And it was kind of ironic because in the South, during the era of the second party system, the Whigs had been the party of kind of the planter elite. But now most of them went to the Democrats, even though the Democrats had traditionally been the party of the Southern yeomanry, the small farmers and that sort of thing. And many Southern Democrats in the 1850s came to oppose the idea of free or even cheap land in an effort to prevent homesteading by non-wealthy, non-slave owners. They wanted more of the West to be open to the creation of plantation systems. And if you've got a bunch of kind of poorer farmers going out there to homestead small farms, that's not going to help spread slavery and, and politically strengthen it. So, like I said, uh, 1852 would be the last time the Whig Party fielded a candidate. In 1856, we have the first election of the third party system where there's a Republican and a Democrat as the two uh, major party alternatives. And I would say that the end of the second party system and the beginning of the third party system didn't happen as the result of kind of a single election. It actually was a process building up for a number of years, but then kind of the, the last straw, so to speak, for the second party system, I believe, was the Kansas-Nebraska Act. But anyway, by the mid-1850s, you know, some historians would date it 1854 with the Kansas-Nebraska Act. Others might say 1856, the first election of the third-party system. You have the third-party system. And the third-party system, people might quibble plus or minus a year or two of exactly when it began. But I don't think there's much argument that it ended in 1896. And there's a pretty decisive election where this happens. In the 1856 presidential election... The first of the third party system, you have the Republicans nominating John Fremont and the Democrats nominating James Buchanan and the Know Nothing Party, which was making its play, nominating a former president, Millard Fillmore. In the election, the Democrats won. The Republicans came in second and the Know Nothings came in third. And as a result, the Know Nothing Party kind of faded away after not existing for very long. And the majority of them became Republicans. Now, all of this and then the rising tensions from things such as the Dred Scott Supreme Court decision and John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry, Virginia, these sorts of things set the stage for the highly unusual four-way presidential race of 1860, where at two different national conventions, the Democrats nominated two different candidates. The Northern Democrats nominated Stephen Douglas for president, and the Southern Democrats nominated John Breckinridge. In addition, a new kind of moderate border state party emerged called the Constitutional Union Party, which nominated John Bell, and of course, famously, the Republicans nominated Abraham Lincoln. And though Lincoln got 
only about 39% of the popular vote, in other words, more than 60% of Americans had voted for someone else to be president, he did get an electoral majority by winning the entire Northeast and Midwest, plus Oregon and California on the Pacific Coast, and thus he became president. Now, this election ended up being ultimately abnormal because of all the extenuating circumstances of the country being on the brink of civil war, and it and the 1864 election that followed was also abnormal because of the civil war itself. But what's interesting is that the unusual dramatic elections of 1860 and 1864 ended up not radically shaking the basic party system that had emerged already in 1856. And as evidence for that, I would point out that not that long after the Civil War, in fact, by kind of the mid to late 1870s, at the very latest, the third party system had reestablished itself into kind of a familiar pattern, with the only major difference now being that slavery and the spread of slavery was obviously no longer an issue as it was before the war. So a brief rundown of some of the key points of the third party system, which again, will date from 1854 or 56, whatever you prefer, to 1896. The Republicans during this period, their branding for themselves was the party of great moral ideas. And those included things like alcohol prohibition, opposition to the spread of slavery, at least prior to the Civil War, support for compulsory public schooling, a high tariff, opposition to immigration, and in general, they were the party more favorable to strong, big federal government-type ideas, and they were more in favor of government intervention in the economy, but it was of a mercantilist sort. And in general, the Republicans during the era of the third-party system were much more comfortable with the idea that the government should ban vices and sins and kind of legislate morality. The Democrats, by contrast during this time period, branded themselves as the party of personal liberty, and so they opposed alcohol prohibition. Yeah, this changes after 1896. These things no longer apply. Keep that in mind. The Democrats also fought to have a low tariff. They were more friendly to things like immigration and allowing some sort of school choice so that, for example, Catholic families could send their children to parochial schools. In general, they were in favor of more limited and decentralized government, and they tended to be more free market laissez-faire, not always consistent for sure, but they tended to be more that way than the Republicans during the third-party system. And in contrast to the Republicans, they believe that government should, for the most part, leave people's private lives and personal moralities alone, and that not all sins and vices should be crimes. They would agree that things like murder and rape and robbery should be crimes because there's a clear victim, but they wouldn't think that you know alcohol, drinking alcohol should be a crime. And again, pietist religious people tended to be much more strongly Republican, and liturgical religious people tended to be much more strongly Democrat. So that kind of gets us through at least introducing the third party system and talking a bit about where it came from and what it was about. And so next time, next episode, we'll pick up with the latter half of the period of the third party system in the so-called Gilded Age from the 1870s through the 1890s, and we'll discuss some of the shifts in party systems that have occurred since then. So look for that to be coming out in the relatively near future. If you liked what you heard in this podcast, there are multiple ways you can help this show continue to exist, to improve, and grow. One is simply to spread the word about the Dangerous History Podcast in any way you can. Social media, online discussion boards, word of mouth, whatever but to help spread the word to people you think might appreciate it. Also consider leaving a review or a rating in podcast venues such as iTunes or Stitcher, and you can help the show financially several different ways. One of the best is to go to patreon.com slash profcj. Patreon, by the way, spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Patreon.com slash P-R-O-F-C-J. Sign up to support the show with a per-episode donation. If you sign up there for at least $1 per episode, and more is certainly appreciated, but for at least $1 per episode, I'll thank you by name in the next show that I record, and you'll have access to special, exclusive, bonus Dangerous History Podcast episodes via Patreon that are available nowhere else. So it's a win-win. You get some extra Dangerous History Podcast, and I get some help in keeping on, keeping on with the show. Also, if you're a supporter of the show on Patreon at a dollar or more per episode, you are eligible to join the private Facebook group entitled Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warriors.
By the way, side note, if your name is different on Patreon from what it is on Facebook, please do contact me. If you apply to join the group to let me know who you are on Patreon, so that I can verify you're a supporter and then I'll be happy to let you into the group. You can go to the show's donate page, profcj.org slash donate, to find other ways to help the show out financially, including PayPal and Bitcoin donations. And of course, you can help the show by purchasing items from Amazon by first going through any of the Amazon affiliate links on my website before you do your shopping. And if you do that and buy anything from Amazon, the Dangerous History Podcast will get a small commission from Amazon at no additional cost to you. One final thing you can do if you want to help out the show is to check out the official Dangerous History Podcast Amazon wish list, where you can order items to help me help the show. And if you do that, I'll thank you by name in the next show that I make after receiving your item. Make sure to check out DangerousHistoryPodcast.com if you haven't already to find the show notes for this and every other DHP episode, which usually include lots of links and things like that. Good stuff. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future.